Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. Since the feminist revolution of the 1970s, Americans and their political elites have been vigorously debating the role of gender in American society, from women in the workplace to the rights and protections afforded to the LGBTQ community in America to, most recently, reproductive health care. Gender norms and roles in America have changed rapidly over the last 50 years, and in heterosexual couples, most households now include two working parents and a significantly increased, though not yet equal, role for men in child care and home life. What's more, society has become much more accepting of gay and lesbian couples and their rights in the United States. Yet, there has also been significant backlash, particularly in recent years. Young women's success in school and the workplace, particularly compared to their male counterparts, has led many to call the current age a crisis of masculinity. And cultural conservatives have found a new voice in protesting queerness in the United States, particularly targeting transgender Americans under the banner of religious freedom. What is clear is that America remains deeply divided in its conception of family, the role of men and women, and the degree to which Americans should be accepted and celebrated for breaking traditional gender stereotypes. The U.S. military has not been immune from these changes. Indeed, most recently, it can often seem as though military personnel policy has become ground zero for many of the so-called culture war battles over gender being fought today. Just in the last 15 years, we've seen the repeal of the policy that prevented gays and lesbians from serving, uh, known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the opening of all combat positions to women, and the introduction, then repeal, then reintroduction of policies designed to accept transgender Americans into the force. Yet today, some of the commentators and politicians have openly mocked service members who defy gender stereotypes or are seen as too feminine. These feel like new and volatile times, but in reality, the U.S. military has been dealing with questions of gender since at least the inception of the all-volunteer force in 1973. And here to help us shed some light on the relationship between past and present is Dr. Heather Haley, an expert in social military history. Dr. Haley is currently a historian with the Naval History and Heritage Command. She earned bachelor's and master's degrees in political science and history from Texas State University and received her Ph.D. in history from Auburn University, where her dissertation examined the U.S. Navy's institutional response to domestic social movements. Most importantly, for our purposes, Dr. Haley is the author of the forthcoming book, Queer in the Cold War, which examines the Department of Defense's response to the gay liberation movement of the 1970s. Dr. Haley, welcome to the program. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So again, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we're really excited to have you. 
I first want to just ask you a general question. You know, what is your what is your background here and why did you choose to study gender and gay rights in the military context? Like most graduate students, I won't say all, there are some who go into their programs knowing exactly what they want to study. I went into my PhD program considering doing work on memory uh, and World War One, And so I, I did kind of a pilot project with that and absolutely hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a project that was published, which is wonderful, um, with the uh, International Journal of Naval History, um, but it, it didn't bring me excitement, right? And this is going to be a project, I was told very early on, that your dissertation is going to be a project that you carry with you for some time. And so I went through some of my classes and uh, early on, I also took a, a, a women's in 20th or actually in American history, women in American history class. And I read a book by Margot Canaday. Um, she is at Princeton University and it is called St um, The Straight State. And she looks at three different aspects of the federal government, including um, women in the army in the immediate post-war years, um, and the ways in which um, the state, as an arm of the state, uh, the army itself kind of pushed this image of masculinity um, and in any particular way that a woman in the army um, even demonstrated that she could potentially be um, lesbian or bisexual, um, that was grounds for, for dismissal. So, um, and that was the book that kind of started this, this entire project. And I've always had an affinity towards the um, Cold War years, um, particularly when it comes to the social movements of the 1960s and 1970s. I can completely relate to changing your dissertation topic. I, uh, I managed to change my major in college away from bioengineering to political science. I often joke with friends that the only reason I became a political scientist was because it was the only class that wasn't an engineering class that I was scheduled to take. <laughs> and so, uh, so, you know, for better or for worse, right, the choices that we make and the things that we absolutely hate and don't bring us joy uh, end up shaping our future direction. Absolutely. Uh, so how did the idea for this book come about? Um, for any graduate students who are listening, I would not discount uh, just even doing a basic Google search <laughs> of, uh, uh, of what you're just kind of just keywords. And that was essentially how my dissertation project and what will ultimately be my first manuscript um, with Cornell University Press uh, ended up being, I, uh, like most graduate students, uh, when this, after reading The Straight State and getting real excited and, and wanting to be the next Margot Canaday, um, I had grandiose ideas for a larger project that was going to be four separate case studies studying race, gender, sexuality, um, but <laughs> a second time around, uh, I, I put my, uh, dissertation proposal together, uh, and they, they stamped approved on it, even though secretly and quietly, they, 
they were telling each other, my committee were telling each other that this is, you're going to overextend yourself. <laughs> and this, so this is ambitious. <laughs> it was ambitious. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so ultimately when I started doing, I started doing the research on one of the case studies, which was um, Ensign Berg in the United States Navy who attempted suing the Navy uh, in 1974 to serve as an openly bisexual officer um, in the United States Navy. And I had never heard of this man before. And that led me down a rabbit hole <laughs> as, as research rabbit holes go. Um, and so I literally just found on YouTube, uh, which was where that, that um, piece to the dissertation proposal came from, was literally from YouTube. Uh, someone, a generous man had uploaded the audio file of Berg and his partner, Lawrence Gibson, speaking to a gay radio station called Gay Rap in New York and talking about their um, forthcoming book and so on. And, and I was just amazed and come to find out Berg donated his personal papers to the New York Public Library. And the rest, as they say, is my research history. And so um, that's essentially how this project kind of came to be. So let's back up for our listeners and ask uh, kind of a big, broad question. Like, what is social military history? Um, and why is it important for us to think about uh, military history and kind of social dynamics? Um, why is that important to our understanding of civil-military relations today? Well, at its core, I would say that social-military history explores the interconnections between what perhaps on its face looks like operational history um, and the people, the places, and the circumstances um, that are involved seemingly on the periphery. Um, so studying the impact of the military, you know, both in peace and in war, uh, tells us a lot about the human experience um, for both active duty personnel and civilians, um, whether it be their family members or the civilians impacted by war and fighting itself. Um, so for me, um, it is, I find it amazing how interconnected civil military relations um, truly is. Um, as it not only involves politics, in my case, the law for my work, um, but the environment, local economies, um, public health. Um, and so uh, studying social military history um, can tell us a lot about, again, the human condition. Yeah, this brings up a good point, right? War doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, it, it exists amongst our social contexts and personnel policy depends, you know, influences who then goes to fight, which then influences effectiveness and mm -hmm. all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot to war that's beyond just battle movements. No, absolutely. Um, so last year, we interviewed Dr. Beth Bailey, uh, who has a terrific book out called An Army of Fire, uh, which talks about the ways that the U.S. Army adjusted to the domestic civil rights movement and the Black Power movements and racial tensions in the ranks following the integration of the armed forces and tensions emerging in the Vietnam War. Um, from your perspective, 
How do domestic social movements, whether they deal with race or women's issues or LGBTQ issues, uh, how do they impact the military? Yeah, um, my research expertise is in, um, I would say, both the women's and um, gay rights revolutions of the 1970s. Uh, And I can say from my research on a project I'm currently working on with the Naval History and Heritage Command, uh, that the Navy in particular was not immune from what civilians might call negative PR when it came to racial issues. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking of the uh, racial tensions aboard aircraft carriers. At the time, um, Elmo Zumwalt, uh, Rear Admiral uh, Zumwalt, was the chief of naval operations. And uh, so his famous Z-grams, these missives that were sent directly to everyone in the fleet, uh, resulted from what I would say is at least kind of an implicit understanding that African Americans and women separately faced different issues as opposed to white men uh, in the service. And so, uh, as I said before, um, not only the Navy, but all services are composed of humans. <laughs> uh, and they have messy and sometimes difficult backgrounds. Um, many personnel at the time in the 1970s um, likely supported some of the social movements of the era, while decidedly others did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those inter those personalities interacted with one another. Um, and so it's it it's a way of kind of managing personalities. Um, and that's kind of the, the fundamental aspect to military service that sometimes gets forgotten. Um, so your book focuses on, you know, uh, predominantly on LGBTQ issues. And uh, it argues that the DOD actually explicitly diverged from the direction that civil society and the civil service in particular took um, by choosing to continue to exclude gay men and women from serving. Um, So what were the rationale? Why did they decide to do this when the civil service decided to take a very different path in allowing uh, LGBTQ or I should say just gay gay and lesbian folks to serve? Yeah. And there's a there's quite a bit of of background involved when it comes to the Civil Service Commission. I'll be calling it the CSC from from now on. Um, so the CSC was required uh, by a judge to uh, because they the the CSC had been in litigation for for quite some time by the mid 1970s, um, I want to say it was 1973, 1974, uh, when um, Judge Baselin uh, out of San Francisco basically laid down the gavel and said, you must open um, the civil service to anyone who identifies openly as gay, lesbian, and bisexual. Um, That's not to say that trans uh, people did not exist. They certainly did. Um, but as with most things in America, everything is incremental, right? So, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, at this point, gays, lesbians, and bisexuals 
uh, are well welcomed, I guess, to some degree, uh, into uh, federal civilian positions within the civil service. Um, that does not extend to the military branches. Um, and there are a number of, of reasons that the Department of Defense gave for, uh, as my book argues, uh, doubling, even tripling down. Um, and that is uh, the common for the good of the service, um, also good order and discipline. Uh, when it comes to the Naval Academy in particular, um, they do cite morale uh, and morality, um, which I find a very interesting argument um, because then that leads me as a researcher to question who is whose definition of morality are we um, is the is the service implementing right um, and so those are just a uh, uh, a few of them. Uh, another one that comes to mind is, is unit cohesion is huge. Um, and again, like I mentioned earlier, this is personalities clashing, and that's the biggest concern at this point. Um, some of these arguments, it seems to me, sound familiar. Uh, <laughs> that, <No>. um, <laughs> that, that we, we are often, we hear some similar arguments being made today uh, when we are when uh, some folks are protesting transgender Americans currently serving in the military, um, particularly the arguments about, you know, unit cohesion and morale and uh, readiness to some degree. So how can we think about the ways that the past may or may not be informing the present in hmm. our debates over kind of um, who gets to serve? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to be doing a, a little bit of, of, going between the book and then work that I'm doing specifically with the Naval History and Heritage Command. Uh, and so I would also like to say that um, nothing that I say today is, of course, the um, opinion of the Department of Defense, the uh, Department of the Navy. Um, but I will say that one of the the projects that I'm, I'm currently working on with the um, command is capturing the oral histories of members of this community, whether they're active duty or veteran um, or retired. And um, one of the, the reasons is to kind of get at what, what you asked in the, in the larger question um, when it comes to um, using your example of transgender Americans, for example, serving in the military. Um, uh, one of the things to just kind of keep in mind is that while this has happened in the past, it is not new. Um, unfortunately, individuals have um, received, um, you know, verbal hate, physical hate, um, and in some instances, um, um, you know, physical violence, and in some cases, death. And so um, it is a, a precarious kind of situation. Um, and so when it comes to unit cohesion in particular, I think that's what the military, the DOD in the 1970s was most concerned about because they had just experienced, uh, and I'm in no way justifying anything that the DOD is, is saying in the 1970s. I'm just um, clarifying that in the 1970s, the Department of Defense had witnessed racial integration and 
sex integration. And one of the concerns with sex integration was this kind of same issue, right, of unit cohesion. There was a lot of um, verbal, opinionated um, backlash, um, not necessarily physical violence toward women, um, but the men aboard these ships were, there was great concern that they would have to, you know, pull the weight of uh, the women because they came into it with certain assumptions, right? Um, and so it was a matter of um, superior officers attempting to um, mediate and and get at some of these these underlying assumptions and stereotypes. Yeah, it's interesting. We often we forget how monumental the early 1970s were from a uh, social fracturing perspective, right? All of the the protests and whatnot from the 1960s, you have the establishment of the all-volunteer force in 1973, right? But the military is still reeling from all the issues that the draft and the Vietnam War sort of created on unit cohesion. You have racial tensions, you have uh, a new kind of sexual revolution. There's a lot going on socially yeah. that people are bringing into these units. And now with an all volunteer force and integration and everything, like there's a lot, there's a lot happening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, you're, you, when you said all those things, um, it, it literally gives me goosebumps because that is what excites me as a historian. Um, because one might look at all of these things individually and say, oh, well, these are, you know, these are potentially wonderful things that bringing women, uh, integrating women into the force, integrating um, African-Americans into the force, uh, uh, and ensuring that there is equality among the races and the sexes. And that's fantastic until we see the verbal and again, in some cases, um, physical retaliation um, by certain members uh, of, of different communities based off of different backgrounds. Um, and uh, uh, fundamentally, the military is um, superior officers are invested very much in people management. And how do you get groups of people who do not have the same ideology to work well together, at least to the point of um, just congeniality at the very least, right? So um, the 1970s is one of my favorite eras to study for this very reason. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it, so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> we oftentimes hear folks today, um, and this is actually, this is a long-standing sort of mantra for, for folks. And I know our former editor-in-chief, Jackie Witt, uh, has a terrific piece that she's written about this, about, um, but the mantra is kind of the military is not a social experiment. Uh, and so, you know, they, this gets said because as an argument um, as to why the military should not be out ahead of society in terms of social change. Mm -hmm. The issue, of course, though, is that, you know, not every American thinks the same about social issues. And you have different laws and different 
issues that arise from state to state versus federal policy, right? So you think about an integrated military during the Jim Crow era and prior to the civil rights movement. Um, I used to work down at the Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama, and this was a big issue uh, in the 1950s and into the 1960s. You think about zero tolerance drug, uh, zero tolerance drug policy in the military, yet where bases are in states where marijuana has been legalized. Um, today, you know, Roe versus Wade uh, and the the Dobbs decision repealing Roe versus Wade, and now states have a lot of abortion bans. And the big, you know, personnel policy issue today is what do you do with service members who uh, need abortion services and they're based in states with different laws than what... Um, the federal government has kind of said is allowable. Um, so this this leads me to kind of ask and wonder, you know, how does the military navigate having their own federal standards when states' conceptions of social issues can look so very different? Um, and in particular, you know, if you want to just focus on the LGBTQ issues, that's fine. Or if you have kind of broader comments on, on larger social changes, that's fabulous as well. Um, but, you know, how how do you navigate this tension between federal standards versus state laws when you're dealing with a federal institution? Absolutely. Um, and I your listeners might be able to hear this, but I'm I'm grinning from ear to ear because this is actually something that weighs on me just even as a, a citizen of the United States of the tension between state and federal. Right. Um, and then this nebulous entity that is of the federal government, but also not the federal government, and that is the military, right? So um, it, it, it's uh, it's so tr so troublesome because the argument that I see in the in the sources from the military, from the navy, from the army, from uh, with one exception, um, I think being the Air Force, but I think that is because the Air Force was so new that they wrote um, their policies all by their lonesome uh, in the 50s. And so they um, had, <laughs> <laughs> they did their own thing. Um, and then, of course, the Marines are of, of the Navy. And so um, and in in much of them, they use the same phraseology, as I make my own words here, um, and that is to say that um, um, verbatim, the service will not move ahead of civilian society, full stop, um, which is so interesting to me because the historical record shows that when it comes to race, um, and there's a brand new book out from Kansas University Press. Um, the author's name is escaping me at this moment, but um, it is on racial integration in the United States military. I highly recommend it. And um, uh, in terms of race and in terms of gender, um, uh, sex integration, the military, in fact, moved ahead of certain states in the union. Um, I'm thinking of racial integration immediately after um, World War II. Um, and then we also have the Women's Armed Services Integration Act that also occurs, um, I want to say at least one year, or I'm sorry, one month before um, racial um, integration. So the desegre official desegregation opening billets um, 
some more, not all of them, but some more um, mm -hmm. billets to both women and African-Americans. That doesn't fully take effect um, and more change doesn't happen until the 1970s. Again, during this era of, of great change when society is overwhelmingly saying we want these fundamental changes. But the changes that occurred in the military occurred in advance of federal legislation. Um, and I find that piece absolutely extraordinary, particularly when it comes to women. In the 1970s, there was um, Phyllis Schlafly, who led the charge against the ERA. Uh, and then when it came to LGBT issues, there was Anita Bryant. And both of these women um, were vocal, used their, um, uh, to some degree, power and privilege um, as, as working housewives. Phyllis Schlafly herself was a homemaker, um, but then had the ability to go out on, on tour, as it were, for her, her Eagle Forum in order to garner support against the ERA. But at the time, the reason Phyllis Schlafly came to be was because of the popularity of the ERA. And so the Navy in particular to speak to the work I'm, I'm doing with the Naval History and Heritage Command, the Navy in particular saw the movement that was happening, the excitement around the Equal Rights Amendment, that in the literature, they're telling one another, we got to get ahead of this. We also have, as you mentioned, Carrie, the equal, or I'm sorry, the all-volunteer force. We are now, we, the military, the Navy, are competing with civilian employers for workers to boil it down to common parlance right right um and so uh, all of that is to say the opening up of the services to a volunteer force right after as you mentioned a time in which uh, i mentioned it earlier that the navy um, was not immune to uh you know racial incidents um bad pr when it came to the war in vietnam um, so all of these different social issues are coming to the fore. And again, because of my work with the Navy, I, I can say that Zumwalt responded to them from day one <laughs> um, in his role as the chief of naval operations. And so this is a moment when the Navy, at least, moves ahead of federal law, right? Because the ERA... It's 2024 now, and the ERA still has not passed. Right. Um, so, yeah. So for, for those who are interested, uh, the book that uh, Dr. Haley recommended is called The Racial Integration of the American Armed Forces, Cold War Necessity, Presidential Leadership, and Southern Resistance. Uh, it is by Jeffrey Jensen, who is an associate professor of history at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, and that came out in February of last year, um, which looks like a terrific read. I'm going to have to read through it. Maybe we'll invite him on the podcast uh, for next fall during our Civ Mill series. I'm I'm interested in you know bringing this back to to kind of the the challenges of today and the the issues that we're we're seeing being fought and played out in the Congress and on the app formerly known as Twitter and you know, just in kind of uh, bar rooms across America. Not that I spend much time there, of course. Um, and 
uh, American society, it just looks different today than it did 50 years ago, right? Last year, we just passed the 50-year anniversary of the all-volunteer force. So we've had five decades since this kind of major era in which you've studied. Um, But particularly when it comes to women's role in society, women now make up 50% of the workforce. They earn high school and college degrees at faster rates than their male counterparts. And they're on average more physically fit. Um, We also see like profound changes in norms around what is traditionally, what has been traditionally codified as feminine versus masculine. Um, And so these norms are changing around, you know, what does it mean to be very boy-like or very girl-like? And um, a lot of young Americans today don't see themselves as fitting neatly into these buckets. So how are these social changes affecting the military today? And what is the what is the military or, you know, the Army, the Navy? What are the different services doing to address the fact that, you know, society looks different? Yeah, um, I. Because I am a historian, uh, I am less familiar with current trends, however, uh, with the caveat that I conducted an oral history um, of a trans woman for our collections at the Naval History and Heritage Command. Um, And she was, uh, she came out as a trans woman two days after the previous administration removed, how do I want to say this? the previous administration, the Obama administration, allowed um, transgender service members to serve as as their authentic selves. Um, the following administration um, rescinded that, right. um, and it was two days after that um, that this commander came out as as a transgender woman, and then spent the remaining you know, two or three years attempting to be reinstated because she's an aviator. Um, and she's always wanted to be an aviator. And she saw the Navy as the um, vehicle, the mechanism to help make her dreams come true. And for the most part, she has been quite successful, except for those two or three years of just the kind of tenuousness of her situation, um, not knowing if she has a job tomorrow. Um, and depending on the i don't want to say whims but the 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 changes in social current i guess you could say um uh affect these people um at a fundamental level and i think um that is important to kind of keep in mind that uh, like i mentioned the military is is made up of humans and these humans have emotions and feelings and uh i would say the historical idea that the military is masculine um, is changing and future um, Gen Z is the um, group of of individuals that the military is going to be pooling from. Um, And I think that we are on track to um, listen to what they say of themselves, um, of humanity writ large, um, and what the military, as in the um, example of the commander that I interviewed, 
you know, what can the military do to help our service members, um, you know, serve as their authentic selves in defense of our in defense of our country. So. Yeah. So this brings me to a, a good final question, actually, um, as you know, the U.S. military is recruiting from a pool of Gen Z and Gen Alpha that has increasingly very flexible notions of gender. Um, and so what should the military be doing in order to ensure that it is able to effectively recruit from this generation or these these future generations um, who might be turned off by super rigid notions of gender and quote unquote hypermasculinity? Sure. Um, I, Gen Z and Gen Alpha certainly do have different um, ideas when it comes to um, gender, uh, which is for clarification um, is expression, how one expresses themselves. Um, and uh at the start of the most recent administration changes, even something as um, innocuous as uniforms, um, they opened up uniforms uh, in the Navy, um, the Cracker Jacks, to women. Um, they used to, women were required to wear um, skirts. And now all Cracker Jacks are tailored to um, men, women, um, intersex, anyone who identifies as non-binary, everyone is now wearing Cracker Jacks. And as well, for those of us who aren't familiar with the Navy, what on earth are Cracker Jacks? <laughs> Thank you. Um, for those, uh, uh, if, if anyone has ever had a box of Cracker Jacks, do they even make those anymore? I hope they still do. I hope they do. They're delicious. Um, but, uh, uh a Cracker Jack uniform, um, is two pieces. I think at one point it may have been a jumpsuit, um, but it is a, uh, uh, a navy blue or black uh, uniform with the uh, sailor collar, uh, which usually has white trim, um, and then it comes with the, the, the white cap. And so previously, as I mentioned, women were um, wearing skirts. And again, while something as innocuous as a uniform um, may seem like no big deal, um, that's for some, that is a, that is a huge reaffirmation of their individuality, of their experience um, to be of the group. Um, And so, uh, so there are, there are changes being had um, and as I mentioned before, when it comes to um, transgender people, it is particularly tenuous um, depending on what year it is, um, depending on, you know, who uh, is on Capitol Hill. Um, and, uh, and so that's just something to kind of, of keep in mind. Um, and things to uh, the future, I think, is bright when it comes to um, the military. And I'm optimistic. So I think uh, what I'm taking away is that it's a really good time to learn as much as we possibly can about the 1970s. Uh, and that your book will contribute to that in a, in a very real way to that canon. Uh, so both the history and philosophy and theory of the 1970s and how that relates to today. Um, this about ends our time here, but 
If you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Dr. Haley, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil-military relations, both past and present. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in to our series on modern civil-military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode, and then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community. So, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.